Hey everyone, this is Cabane. Uh, today we're going to do a pre-written video on what the gospel is. This is a question that, of course, is incredibly important, but it has multiple dimensions to it. Because we don't just mean, when we talk about the gospel, everything included in Christian doctrine. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about something specific. It's something which is the fulcrum of all Christian theology, but it has a particular cadence within the scriptures and particularly within the New Testament. So we will be talking about the gospel as that term is interpreted by the apostles. Before we get into the substance of the video, I just want to say that if you enjoy this content and you want to help uh, continue to facilitate its production, please consider becoming a patron. There is some exclusive content, but I really want to keep this available to as many people as I can for as long as I can. So the main attraction is at the third tier where you're guaranteed at least an hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion um, on the phone or on Zoom uh, every month if you'd like it. Um, but there is some content for the other tiers, and I really would appreciate it if you would uh, consider that. And I want to thank everyone who has very graciously and generously become a patron. Also, uh, on Monday, that's November 8th, 2021, uh, around 9 to, or starting around 9 or 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we are going to be doing the live stream where I take questions, especially for those who do Super Chat. So there's all that on the horizon. But with that said, let's get into it. The gospel, this word is taken from the Old Testament, and it refers to the announcement of a great military success. In the New Testament, that success is the victory of Jesus over the powers and principalities by the blood of his cross. He has made peace between God and man, between men and men, and between man and creation. The gospel means that the enemy has been shattered by that which he could not and cannot comprehend. Perfect, self-giving, utterly unpossessive love. Jesus Christ on his cross did not seek to take, but to give. The entirety of the story was of his perfect and willing gift. The one who fashioned myriads upon myriads of heavenly armies was nailed to a Roman cross by two, three, or four soldiers. The evil one, dominated by his own desperate quest to take and steal as much as he could, could only see this crucifixion as a victory. If God's anointed had been nailed to the cross, it was because he had been overpowered at last. No one who could dominate others by the sheer force of his will could ever be so shamefully slaughtered. God alone is self-existent, self-sufficient, and utterly without ontological partners, meaning in the manner of his existence. The cosmos that we know exists only because this infinite God chose to make a world holy for its own sake, whose existence, depending upon God, is nevertheless no more or less proper to what and who it is to be God than an alternative reality where he never made a world at all. For everything it is to love, to delight, to rejoice, or in other words, to exist, all of this is realized in perfect fullness in the one self-existent God, the Father Almighty, whose being Heavenly Father entails the begetting of the Eternal Son 
in whom he delights, and the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father, through whom he delights with and in his Son. As God, meaning this God, God the Holy Trinity, as God alone exists of himself, it is God alone which tells us what it means for anything to exist. And his being, Holy Trinity, means that to exist is to exist in relation. Relation, properly actualized and perfected, means communion. This communion means that each divine person gives and reveals the entirety of himself to the other two, who, in a manner of speaking, receive and apprehend that gift and revelation in its entirety. To exist properly means to exist wholly for the sake and joy of other selves. The essence of the enemy's rebellion is the renunciation of exactly this relationship. If he could be said to have a philosophy, it is that the only relation which one person or one subject can have to another is a relation structured by domination or being dominated. This occurs in his view through the imposition of force, whereby one person forces himself on everything else in a quest to take and seize it for one's own gratification and necessarily to the other's destruction. The delight of one creature in this view is always the devastation of another, and devastation had one purpose, utter annihilation, so that the one who dominated would alone exist, all potential rivals being wiped out. Such in his view is the structure of things, the idea of communion where two creatures willingly offer themselves for the sake of the other, fulfilling the joy of both creatures, is utterly incomprehensible to the enemy. Such was his explanation for God's prohibition on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the first case of psychological projection in the history of the cosmos. This tree was a tree of kingship and dominion, as the royal phrase, knowledge of good and evil, as in 1 Kings 3, Isaiah 7, and so forth, indicates. Why was Eve not permitted to partake of this fruit? Why it was obviously because God wanted to hoard power for himself, knowing that the exaltation of one human creature would entail a demotion in glory and honor for God. The glorification of one must entail, in this view, the humiliation of another. God made the creation in truth as a beautiful and united sculpture, radiant, undivided, in a state of perfect harmony, manifested both in its own relational web, i.e. the peaceful relationship between animals, lions, gazelles, and so forth, as well as its corporate relation as one cosmos to the creator. The sculpture was intentionally incomplete, and that lack of completeness was part of the joy. For God shared with the creature man the capacity to see things according to their inner essence. They could understand the world as an integrated whole, apprehending thereby the mind of God who gave it that unity. And most importantly, man, the image of God, was given the capacity to freely participate in that work of extending and completing the creation. There were and are an infinite number of rich and majestic ways in which the creation can be shaped, molded, 
and brought to its fullness. It would be God's delight to work with his children in this work and to share with them his own joy in bringing the richness of life in all of its contingent variety more deeply and totally onto the theater of cosmic history. The delight was to be precisely in gift. The world was freely shared with those who would delight not in themselves, but in each other, and most of all, in the God who took joy in that mutuality. And it was this purpose, this relation, this perfection, which Satan, the enemy, so despised and sought to destroy. By the way, if you hear little noises, that's probably my dog who's uh, very talkative. Um, uh, he's a Frenchie, and so he, he cannot keep silent. Um, anyway, the outworking and the practical implementation of the enemy's philosophy was the exponential fragmentation of this created sculpture, which was once undivided, a fragmentation which was designed to be the instrument of its own exponentiation. Every fragment in this broken creation would be opposed to every other fragment, as that is the only relation the enemy comprehends. And this opposition would endlessly splinter the world until one had nothing but microscopic shards of razor-sharp glass, dust, dust which had once been a world, and dust which is infinitely sharp. Uh, every grain of this sharp dust would be utterly isolated and infinitely repulsive, a word which does not only refer to a state of mind, though it does for those creatures who possess consciousness, but also refers to the mere objective state of repelling everything other than itself, away from itself. This repulsion which would inhere in every shard of the broken world would serve to continue fragmenting and breaking apart the world. Thus, the pieces in their endless shattering would become smaller and smaller, and they also would become sharper and sharper, more and more destructive as they became more and more destroyed. The more they are burst and broken, the more intensely they burst and break everything else. From the creation of the world to the coming of the Messiah of Israel, this was what occurred on our enemy's side of the battle. The Creator had announced, to his shock, that his work of creation would not be abrogated despite the fall. What he gave to mankind, which, remember, was the commission to continue and complete the creative work itself. The destiny of the creation is bound to the destiny of mankind. But what he gave to mankind he would not revoke. As shards of glass lay at God's feet, he proclaimed that the sculpture would be completed as planned. And indeed, it would be completed through the human family, as planned. The divine instrument through whom this purpose would be accomplished was the seed of the woman. The human family, which would complete the task, was the very human family, which, with its first breath, seemed to wreck the task. Incomprehensibly to the enemy, God did not annihilate man and the cosmos. And so the enemy worked tirelessly to facilitate this destruction. The destructive end seemed to almost succeed in the flood as the evil one had poisoned 
every vine which grew from the root of Adam. Every vine except one. A single twig, tiny and pitiful, the last healthy branch in the whole tree, narrowly escaped the poison. And that branch was built into an ark. And from it, the root of Adam bloomed again. The evil one worked his death-bearing work as he intensified and multiplied the opposition, bloodshed, and rebellion in the human family. The Creator chose one particular family, that of Abraham, through whom he would pour life-giving sap back into the tree of Adam. And so the evil one gathered those whom he dominated to war with them and their bloodline. If they were the seed family through whom the destined destruction was to come, then he would work his destruction upon them and through them. Every moment of his existence was devoted to their deception, to the multiplication of their evil, and to the reversal of their purpose as an instrument of blessing. Instead of creation gathered into this sanctified people, they would become the enemy's instrument of violence, bloodshed, idolatry, and death. But in the fullness of times, the Messiah of Israel appeared, according to the prophetic promise made in the beginning. And the enemy felt himself ready, having, been, having prepared for this moment since his ancient past. He warred his war against Jesus of Nazareth, blocking his way, threatening his life, seeking to turn him to his own side. But it was in the third and final year of his ministry, at the very moment when Jesus had publicly announced that the redemption had arrived, that the enemy felt his time had come. He would at this moment press his advantage and defeat any redemption, executing a flawlessly designed and expertly implemented plan. His scheming would at last be vindicated. He would acquire dominion over the whole cosmos, having destroyed the air of the world, and he would thus execute his will and annihilate everything except himself. Every sin, every evil, Every strife, every conflict, and death itself, death, which is the division of man from God and from everything else, since everything exists through participation in God, being split from God creates an infinite process of shattering, conflict, and opposition that extends down to the inner depths of one's own being, as one is turned against oneself. An honorable person is said to have integrity. You are integrated, you are harmonized, because having a body we are unified in various complementary parts. This death was focused on and maximized in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was as if every soldier in his global war gathered together into a more and more densely concentrated battlefield, their commander recognizing with increasing clarity its extreme strategic significance. This man was the end point of God's purpose. He was the human family. And the evil one flawlessly pressed his advantage. He had been preparing for this moment since the beginning. Sin, which by its nature can do nothing other than shatter into nothing, shattered the hands, feet, and side of Jesus of Nazareth, bringing to pass his own disintegration and dissolution into a dusty nothingness. With the appointed seed wiped out, mankind secured and conquered with finality by Satan, would be liable to the extermination he so desired. Of this victory, there could be no question. But at the very moment that the devil roared his victory to his slaves and to the enemy, his enemy, the impossible question was raised. 
The entire armada, at the very moment when every one of its weapons fired simultaneously, simply dissolved in the ocean of the sun's infinite love. This unexpected infinity showed the hand which God had concealed. The Messiah of Israel, hidden in order that he might be revealed, now revealed himself as the eternal Son. Through his intrinsic perfection and intrinsic infinite love as a divine person, he extended himself both in utter devotion to his heavenly Father and in total love for the human family. Neither his devotion to the Father nor his love for mankind wavered for a second. The perfection of his unity with both the Father and mankind at the very moment when the breaking apart of creation violently reached its zenith paradoxically unshattered the glass. The unity of creation had become 10 billion razor-thin shards of glass, and every one of those pieces was now flying towards Jesus Christ in a single movement, and they reached their target. They joined themselves with his blood and with his bones. But because the divine Son remained so perfectly joined to humanity and to God alike, even the sharpest pieces of glass could not tear him. Not an ounce of disunity could possibly occur. It would be akin to there being a square circle. It's not on the cards, even in principle. And so, reaching their target and being truly joined to him, the only possibility was the integration into that unbreakable unity. They were gathered together and renewed in perfection according to their original creative design. As, and as he, Jesus Christ, was the telos, the goal, the purpose of creation from the beginning, the archetype for the eschatological cosmos, that is the cosmos as God intends to realize in the um, revelation of Christ's glory in all things, the archetype for the eschatological cosmos was made manifest in the same act that the protological cosmos, the world as it was in the beginning, was restored. And thus, the enemy was conquered. And that is the gospel. The gospel is that the oppressor has been cast down, his rod broken, his name brought to nothing. And since each one of his acts is to repulse, to shatter, to break, to provoke unto conflict, the finality of his defeat means that reconciliation has been realized. As the Apostle Paul writes, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The brokenness which had defined the relationship of God and the world was permanently and irrevocably overcome by the hypostatic union, the joining of the cosmos to the one person or hypostasis of the eternal Son. And the slow spiral of the world's towards nothingness was not only stopped, but reversed, inverted, by the Son's perfect extension of himself and his love into every corner of the world's being. Not a single creature escaped his total remembrance as he assimilated all of the logi, the ideas which form the basis of creation, the dogness which makes a dog a dog, the humanness which makes a human a human being, all of those exist eternally in the mind of Christ. And so the joining of the mind of Christ to the mind of a human being reconciles the two into an unbreakable oneness. In assimilating all of these ideas into his own human mind, glorified by the union with 
the Logos, he reordered all things in relation to him and through the human family, the human family which had been called for this purpose in the beginning. Our sin leads to death. How could it do otherwise? That's what it means for sin to be sin. But the gospel is that in Christ, that death has been died. Through that death, the grave which was once the devastating destination of human life through sin now became a door. Jesus had entered into that grave and smashed through the other side in a resurrected, glorified, and transfigured body. We do indeed deserve to die for our sins, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. To deserve to die means that death is the natural and proper realization of the act which we call sin. Even the slightest imperfection in the orientation of one's will would point that person away from the only possible source of life, the only possible source of existence, who is God, and thus to corruption and death. There's no option three. It's not arbitrary. It is written into the laws of existence themselves. But with the cross, the grave, the resurrection of Christ, God in Christ is not counting our trespasses against us. Having been incorporated into his death, the misfirings of the will, which when acted upon produce death, receive their natural consequence, receive their just deserts in union with the one who has been crucified, with the one who has died. And because they have received their home due, in repentance, God sets aside our transgressions as we pass through the grave unto the resurrection of rebirth and a life conformed to his likeness. As for the enemy, his old job as accuser has been discontinued, and he's been fired. So, uh, I didn't make the case for any of this here, except perhaps tangentially, because that's much more complicated and much more in-depth. I wanted to give what I take to be the biblical vision of the gospel as a narrative, um, as a, uh, a narrative that is unified in the language of the conquering king. Because I think that the language of gospel really focuses in on the motif of Christ, the victorious king. Uh, and perhaps uh, we can go through this in more detail at a later point in a series where we kind of systematically look at the biblical roots of everything that I've said. Um, I would recommend for those who are interested in that to uh, check out my two and a half hour discussion on these points in uh, uh, a video called The Cross of Christ from Old to New Testaments. Uh, so I thank you for... Uh, uh, watching slash listening today, and I hope to see you at the live stream tomorrow.